Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So good morning. I'm excited uh, to start this new sermon series with you this morning where we're going to be walking through the book of Matthew. Uh, This will be a great study because we're going to focus and learn all about the life of Jesus. You see, this book is very different than kind of what we've been through before. We went through 1 Corinthians, and that was a letter written by Paul. It was a congregational letter, so he's writing to a group of people to read it, to learn from. This is very different because this is a biography of the life of Jesus. Now, biographies written in the first century are very different than how we would or what we would think of as a biography. Uh, One thing in particular is they didn't have all the resources we have. Paper was very expensive, so they're not going to write about every single detail and everything they can find out. It's going to be for a purpose, and it's going to be a specific period of time explaining certain events. So all of these little biographies or the Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, All of them are writing very intentional. It's not chronological. They're not writing it in the exact order that you would necessarily find it. They're writing it for a very specific purpose, and that's okay. That's just how they did things back then. We have to understand that when we come upon different types of literature. And so Matthew is unique out of all the Gospels because it really helps us understand the bridge between Jesus and the Old Testament. Matthew really focuses on how Jesus fulfills what's been foretold in the Old Testament. It it brings it together better than any other book. Matthew wasn't written before all the other stuff in the New Testament, maybe some of it. We know Paul's writings were before Matthew. We even know Mark's gospel was written before Matthew's. But Matthew, the reason why it's the first book in our New Testament is because it explains how Jesus fulfills, how Jesus is carrying out all of these promises and prophecies we find in the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. In fact, Matthew references the Old Testament 60 times, over 60 times in his um, gospel. And so it's written from a very Jewish perspective, which is a good thing for us because we have the Old Testament we can work through and we can learn and we can read to really understand the life of Jesus. Because remember, this is history. Jesus was a real person. This was written at a real time. And so the first three chapters of Matthew, which what we're going to dive in today, not all three chapters, by the way, but it's all about how Jesus, he establishes Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. And he arranges the book around five major teachings. This is what we're going to dive into. Next slide, please. This slide, and again, I know you can't see it very well, but we have them sitting up front. You can take one home with you. Um, I did not draw this. This was from the Bible Project, by the way. But this is how we're gonna, the gospel's going to unfold so you can know in advance that Matthew is very intentional about how he writes his letters, uh, excuse me, write, how he writes this gospel. It's centered around five major teaching sections from Jesus, just like the first five books of Moses, what we call the Old Testament. 
He is very intentional about what he does. He's a genius how he lays it all out. And the first three chapters, he just really focuses on Jesus being connected to Abraham and David fulfilling these covenants, which we're going to talk about today as well. So this is a great illustration. Take one home. You can look it up online. I'll even send it on the Outlook for you to have it on your computer. But it's just a great resource to kind of track how Matthew and, and how he lays it out and the things we're going to be working through. Now, what's interesting is we see up here that the author, Matthew, actually never identifies himself as the author. We have to rely on church uh, tradition and church history for this. And it was by the end of the first century, they had already attributed this book to this man named Matthew or Levi, right? We'll get into him later on when, when we see him unfold in the book. But this was about 70 years after the life of Jesus. They, they already identified that Matthew was the person who wrote this. Now, there's all sorts of different things Matthew does in his gospel, but other than just specifically telling us about the life of Jesus, um, he really focuses on the aspect of discipleship. One author writes this, one scholar writes this, next slide. He says, some scholars argue that Matthew wrote his gospel as a kind of manual for discipleship, a careful recounting of the words and works of Jesus so the early church would know how to carry on his mission by his absence. By seeing how Jesus made disciples, second, third, fourth, and following generations of Christians would know how to make disciples of all nations. So this book really focuses on the discipleship aspect, which makes sense because the idea of being a disciple is a very Jewish thing. Matthew is Jewish, writing to a Jewish audience, really explaining out what this means and what it looks like to have trust and allegiance to Jesus Christ. We'll see how it calls us into action, meaning as Christians, you'll find out throughout the gospel, the idea of us just showing up at church for one hour a week was like nothing to do with what it means to be a Christian. That might be what you do for a concert. That might be what you do for a school play. But if your relationship with God is like your relationship with your kids' school plays, there's something wrong. Right? It's very different, and that's what the book is going to unfold. And we're going to go ahead and land on and really identify that this is a disciple-making book, and this is a manual for you and for me to not only learn what Jesus did, but also apply that to our lives so we can invest in other people, because that's what we're here to do, folks. We're here to make immature followers of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is about. Look how Matthew ends the book. He ends with this, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And what do you do? He's the one in charge. What does he want them to do? Build an empire? No. Therefore, go and make disciples, invest in other people of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And so it starts with this idea of this King Jesus, which is going to unfold, but it ends, because we've got to know where he's going, with this idea that not only do we see Jesus living out what it means to be a mature Christian, because he is Jesus, but also how he trains and develops others and then sends them out to do the same, because folks, we're a church and that's what we're about, carrying out the mission and the works of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's what we're supposed to do. And you say, well, why? And that's what Matthew is going to introduce us to at the very, very beginning. 
Here is the why. This is the why you invest your life in other people. This is why you take serious what the gospel's about. This is why you take serious what Jesus is about. He starts off verse one. He said, this is a record or this is a book. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. So first off, we have to understand your translations might say this is the ancestors of Jesus Christ. But we have to remember that Christ is not Jesus's last name. Right. We forget that, but it's not. Christ is not his last name. Christ is the Greek term for the Greek word for Messiah which means anointed one. So it's Jesus. This translation really helps us out. It's saying Jesus, the Messiah, not just Christ, but Jesus, the Messiah. They're making, he's making the statement from the very, very, very beginning of the book. This is what I want to show you. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the king. So Jewish people would have been awaiting a Messiah. They would have been awaiting this king, this long um, lineage, and these covenants that's supposed to be fulfilled. They knew this leader was to come. And Matthew starts right off the bat, this is him. This is what he's trying to show us. This, he's not being sly about it. He's not trying to be like, uncover it, like you'll figure this out. He's like, nope, I'm going to show you Jesus is the king. He is the anointed one. Because in the Old Testament, there were three people who were anointed. There were three types of people. You have the prophets, you have the priest, and you have the king. And Jesus is all three. You see, prophets spoke for God. They not only spoke about the future, about what may un- or what will unfold, they also, they also proclaimed God's truth. And we know that about Jesus. They, everybody saw Jesus, we'll see in the Gospels. They weren't exactly sure who he was, but they saw with the miracles and they saw with the authority of his teaching, they said, well, we know you're from God. We know you're a prophet. We know you're at least that. But then we also see that Jesus is the great high priest. Right, very different than anybody thought was coming. A high priest would make a sacrifice for the nation so everybody's sins would be forgiven. Right, The Day of Atonement, you've probably heard of that before. Maybe you haven't, but that's what it is. But Jesus was a little bit different because instead of offering a sacrifice for everybody's sin, he offered himself as the great sacrifice for everybody's sin. So he's a prophet. He's the great high priest. We could never have one greater than him, but he's also the king. He's the rightful ruler from the line of David. That's what Matthew wants to show us right from the beginning when he tells us about Jesus, the Messiah, descendant of David and of Abraham. He's saying, listen, Jesus, Jesus's life is rooted in the promises of God. Jesus's life is rooted in the promises that God gave us a long time ago. It's finally coming to be because we have a covenant keeping God. And we saw this in the life of Abraham and the life of David. Remember a couple of months ago when we were in the six Acts series, act number three, we talked all about Israel. And in order to understand Israel, we got to understand the covenants that God made with Israel. We did that whole series to prepare for going verse by verse through one of the gospels. And what we saw is that the Bible, one of the big things at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 12, we see this covenant made to Abraham. It says, the Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and go to your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. And I told you then and we'll rest- I'll restate it now. We cannot overemphasize the importance of this 
covenant because the rest of the Bible is showing us how this plays out, how God's going to fulfill this or how God did fulfill this. He tells him that, listen, a whole nation, Abraham, like this whole thing's coming from you, which is the nation of Israel, and they're waiting for the whole world to be blessed. And Matthew is pointing us to Abraham. He's saying, look, this is Jesus. This is that guy. This is the one we've been waiting on for thousands of years. Like, this is him. But not only that, also we'll see Moses work its way throughout the gospel of Matthew. We'll see how Jesus is connected to him. But he also says, look, it's not just that God's fulfilling the, most, uh, the Abrahamic covenant through, through Jesus. It's also the Davidic covenant. And that's about the king. Remember this, 2 Samuel seven sixteen. It says, your house, this is what God tells David, King David. He says, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure forever. Like forever? Yeah, forever. How's that going to work? They didn't know. But we see in the person, the works of Jesus Christ, the great king. And if you missed that sermon and you need to work back through all that, or this is a new topic, go online or you can go to our YouTube or go to our, our, our website. It's the six-act series. It's number, number three. We work through the different covenants, and you can catch up on all of that. But Matthew is telling us right from the beginning that Jesus is the king. He is the long-awaited ruler. He is the one to fulfill all the different covenants. And then in verses 2.16, we see a long list of names. If you have your Bible with you, you can open up, and I'll have one of you all come up and read all that. No takers? Okay, we'll move on then. But he's telling us through all of those different names, he's connecting Jesus to the entire Old Testament. He's connecting Jesus to everything that's happened in the past. And listen, he's a real person, which means Jesus is rooted in real history. Jesus is just not some figment of our imagination. He's not just some myth or some guy they talk about or kind of made up. Jesus has a real history. He had real relatives. He has people. Like, this is who his people were. And every name on that list has a history, just like all of our names. It's more than just a name. It's rooted in history. It means something. So all of those names tell a story. It's not only their personal story, but also the story of Israel. And he connects Jesus to the story of Israel and all that God has done and all that God's going to continue doing through all of that. But specifically, what Matthew wants to make sure me and you know is that Jesus, through the way he lists out his genealogy, his family tree, is that Jesus is connected to the throne of David. That he is in line to be a king. He has the blood. He has the people needed to be a king. And according to one author, he writes this. He says, no Jew today. Next slide. He says, no Jew today has, legal gene has his legal genealogy. All the records were destroyed in A.D. 70 when the temple was ruined. Jesus Christ is the only Jew alive today who can prove his rights to the throne of David. Now, history tells us that the Jewish temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 A.D. And so I didn't take the time to really investigate this, but it's a pretty profound statement, so feel free to do it. But it's interesting to think that all of their records were destroyed and lineage and, and who was going to carry out this promise is a big deal to to them, like who's from this line? And Jesus is the only one who's like, hey, fact check it. I, I'm, I'm part of that heritage and none of them can prove it anymore because the records are gone. It's just crazy to think about all of that. And when it comes to genealogies, some of you get really excited about that, don't you? You know all of your family history. I do not know all of mine. I probably don't want to know all of mine. 
Some of you have it all mapped out. I know there's like a resurgence in this with 23andMe and all this different stuff. I did my DNA, and it was like, whoa, that's really weird looking through all that, right? And some of you get really excited because you don't have to do it. They all live in your neighborhood, right? You all live in the same land. Yes, talking to those Aner folks, we know who you are. And around here, I found out how being connected is important. When we were hiring some positions around here, um, we, we would hire people, and the first thing, people would come up to me and say, hey, what's their last name? And I'd tell them. They said, well, who? Are they related to so-and-so? And I said, I, I think so. They mentioned something like that. And once you found out who their great-granddaddy's uncle was, you're like, oh, we trust them. They come from good stock. I, what does that even mean? I don't know. I don't even know what that means. But you know their people. And if you know their people, it gives you confidence in who they are. And it was the same way for Jewish people. They felt the same way. So when, when Matthew lays out this list from verse 2 through 16 of all those different people, they would have been like, oh, we know them. Yep. We are comfortable with this guy. Like, we get this. And they say a picture is worth a thousand words. So it must be worth at least 290 because that's how many I'm not going to read to you this morning. But here it is. Next page. Next slide. This is Jesus' family tree. Can you see that? If you sat in the front, you can. If you sat in the back, you should have sat in the front. I don't know what to tell you. There's plenty of seats up here. But this is everything from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah. And he just lists out. This is what he goes through, all of these different names, till we get to Jesus. He was a real person in real history. And what we do know is he's doing something very interesting in this family, Matt, because we know he leaves people out. He's not hiding it. We have the Old Testament. We have the records. He's intentionally leaving things out to show us something interesting. Look, Matthew 1.17, he says this. He says, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. And so we think, well, is it really that neat and clean where it all groups up into 14? Nope. He skipped some people. Just like you would skip some people if you were to list out your family tree. You'd be like, y'all don't need to know about this person. We're just not going to tell you. But we know that he's doing it. And what's interesting is all the people me and you would leave out of our family history, he puts in. All the people with these checkered pasts that you're like, man, I wouldn't tell anybody about that. He's like, nope, let's go ahead and talk about it. He puts their name in the list. So he, he's doing something interesting here. And if this is your thing, you love to research, you should check this out because it's really interesting. He groups everybody into three groups of 14. And it could be because of the name David, right? King David, right? We already know he's attaching Jesus to David. David, um, his, his name in Hebrew is connected to the number 14. All right, what they would do is, I guess what we could do is A represents one, B represents two, C represents what? Three. You're tracking with me, right? They had the same system. And David, spelled out, is actually to the number 14. So he could be showing us through that, the, the genealogy list that David, uh, the three groups 14, he's spelling out David and showing us and repeating this idea of David, this line of David, this king coming. Or it's not only three groups of 14, it's also six groups of seven. Seven is the, complete, the number of completion in the Bible. It's a very special number, number because of seven days of creation. And so if there's six group of seven, that means Jesus would be starting the seventh group. So the perfect group of perfection. So it's just a lot of nifty things here. Y'all can run with that. Ask your Sunday school teacher. They know the correct answer. So talk to them about all that kind of stuff. 
But the thing I want to talk to you about for the rest of our time together through this genealogy, because it's, it's, it's a lot going on there. We can't look at everything. I just want to look at the messiness of this family tree. Go to the next slide for me. I want to talk about this absolute mess we have here with some of these people. Because if you're like me, chances are you have some really messed up people in your family. And one of them may be you. But that's what's so amazing about the heritage of Jesus Christ. The messiness doesn't stop God. And it's very important, especially for some of us, to understand the messiness doesn't stop God. Look what New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says about this. He says, good or evil, they were part of the Messiah's line. For though grace does not run in the blood, God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. You see, in the life of Jesus, in his family line, there is no pattern of righteousness. It's not just a bunch of great people who do everything's perfect. We just see these roots of faith in some people and others are just absolutely terrible. But what we see throughout it is God's providence working, meaning God's care and protection, meaning God's going to do what he wants to do regardless of what you do. God's going to do whatever he wants. You're going to be either used for his glory, you're going to participate and experience his blessing and all the greatness that comes along with it, or he's still going to do what he's going to do in spite of your sin. Meaning your sin's not going to stop God from doing what he wants. You'll just miss out on it. You'll miss out on experiencing that. You'll miss out on the blessings from that. You'll miss out on being a part of what God is doing in the world. I mean, can you believe how mind-blowing that is, that the God who created the cosmos wants to use you or me and do things through us for his glory? I mean, that's just amazing to even think about. But God isn't going to be stopped. And your messiness doesn't stop God's faithfulness. That's the big idea today. Your messiness does not stop God's faithfulness. Even if you have a bunch of family issues. A lot of people on these lists had a ton of family issues. How many of you had had somebody in your family? All right. Not, don't nudge your spouse right now, okay? But how many of you have had someone in your family tree that was like, mm, I'd rather not talk about it? The rest of y'all lying are your families here, okay? Yeah, we all have that. But so did Jesus. Think about this guy. Go to the next slide. We have Jesse. You've probably heard of him, maybe. He's David's dad. Think about Jesse. He had eight sons. When we find out about Jesse, we find out he's just a guy who's living in town. I mean, living his life. He has eight sons. He's not an elder. He doesn't have a high status. He's not a prominent person in his society or in his hometown. Yet God tells Samuel... The prophet, he says, hey, I need you to go to Jesse's house. I got something special planned. The next king's going to come from Jesse, Jesse's line. So Samuel goes, and Jesse isn't anybody. He's a nobody until God chooses him to be a somebody. And so Samuel goes to the house. Um, yeah, Samuel goes to the house, and Jesse prays all his son around, saying, hey, it must be this guy. It must be this guy. And what does Samuel tell him? Nope. Yeah, I know he's the oldest, nope. I know he's the tallest, nope. I know he's the best looking, nope. I know he's smart. He prays all these sons, and he's like, it, it seems like something's wrong. He said, do you have any other sons? He's like, yeah, just the young one. He's out in the fields. You have this great prophet coming 
from God, which doesn't happen. In your home, you're sharing a meal with, which doesn't happen often. Just think about someone prestigious, somebody awesome, someone that you never get to meet, never get to talk about. You just hear about they're coming to your home. You'd invite everybody, be like, hey, come have dinner with them. Yeah, think about if I was coming over, something like that, right? You just prepare all this awesome stuff. Right. This is something awesome happening at Jesse's home. And David, like, ah, put him in the field. Don't worry about him. Just put him in the field. He doesn't need to be here for anything special. He doesn't need to be a part of this. It tells us and shows us. I mean, he could have hired somebody. It tells us and shows us what they thought of David. And yet Samuel said, something's not right. Go get your other son. And what happens? When David comes in, we find out this is the one who's supposed to be the anointed one. So my point is this. Just because your parents may not have invested you like you thought they should have, just because you have some family wounds, some mom or dad wounds, we all got them. Listen, it doesn't stop God from using you. It doesn't change what God can do through you. And just because you may have not done the best as a parent, doesn't stop what God can do through your kids. You aren't everything, and God is far greater than our mistakes. Your messiness doesn't stop God's faithfulness. The messiness of your family. And some of us, we need to take a deep breath of relief. Going, okay, it's not all me. It's not. God is far greater. I mean, think about Tamar. Where's she at? Yeah, right here. Tamar. Now, funny story about this, if you don't know who she is. I was frustrated with our kids for not getting along. And have y'all ever been frustrated at your kids for not getting along? Jeb raised his hand real quick. He said, yep, yep, I get that, Jeb. Frustrated at him. So I told my oldest, I said, listen, I need you to read. I need you to go read Genesis 4. And I need you to go read Genesis 38. I need you to read the stories of Cain and Abel. And I need you to read the stories of Joseph. I need you to see how the sibling rivalry doesn't turn out well in the Bible. So I got home. I said, you read? He said, yeah. I said, what's the first one about? He said, Cain and Abel. I was like, yep, tell me about it. We talked about it. I said, what's the next one? He said, so I don't understand that one. It's like, what do you mean? It's about Joseph. He's like, that's not what chapter 38's about. He was correct. Chapter 37 is about Joseph, not 38. And chapter 39 continues the life of Joseph. Chapter 38 is about this. If you don't know the story, look it up for yourself. It's about Judah's son who marries Tamar. He's evil, so God takes his life. Then the next son marries her. He's supposed to have kids with her for his brother. He decided he didn't want to have kids with her. You can read the story to see what he chose to do. And God killed him for it. Next up, Judah, the father-in-law, is supposed to give her the next son so he can carry on the line of his oldest son and the next son who died. And Judah doesn't do it. I mean, he's like, look, two of mother's sons have died married to this girl. Like, something must be wrong with her. <laughs> so he chooses not to follow through. So she decides to trick Judah. She pretends to be a prostitute. And I guess Judah was into that kind of thing. Because she pretends to be a prostitute. He ends up getting her pregnant. Then he finds out she's pregnant. He's like, look, we need to kill this woman. Let's burn her because she got pregnant from some dude. And then she ends up saying, hey, but that dude was you. This is the story I asked my son to read and tell me about. <laughs> Do you understand? And he was like, so I don't understand that one. And I'm like, I looked out. I was like, oh, out of all the stories in the Bible. This was the wrong one, okay? Wrong story. 
But this is Jesus's great, 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 however great grandma and granddad. Like that's in his family. And yet it didn't stop God. Those are family issues. But your family messiness doesn't stop God's greatness, doesn't stop God's goodness. And he can still use you even in spite of you. And it's an amazing thing about God's faithfulness. So take a deep breath, be encouraged, because God is still God. Not only we see this in the life of of individuals, or excuse me, the whole family units, but we see it in the life of these individuals. You see Rahab, this woman right here, she didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite prostitute. And when Joshua sent the spies to the uh, town to scout it out, to figure out how they were going to conquer it, what they were going to do, they end up staying at her house. So what do you think they were doing? They were just sleeping over. We actually don't know, but the whole story is really suspect. They choose to hang out at her house. Well, they find out that they're supposed to be spies. They're like, yeah, there's Jewish spies here. And they're staying at Rahab. So the king's like, all right, well, go get Rahab. Let's talk about this. Rahab lies. He's like, you're not supposed to lie. I guess when it comes to killing innocent people, you should lie about it, okay? So she lies. She hides him and says, look, I know that y'all are about to wipe us out. We know your God. We've heard what your God can do. I know you're about to take over our city. So listen, spare us. They said, no problem. You're saving us right now from being killed by your king. We're going to spare you and your family when we come back to conquer. And they did. It's one of his grandmas. Canaanite, Gentile, prostitute. What's so amazing about all of these Women listed here, you have Tamar, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth is a little bit different, but Bathsheba, all of them have, and all of them were, like, really abused in their society. Like, they are not in ideal situations. They are in really rough situations. But God stepped in and used it for his glory. They weren't living these holy, perfect lives. Some of you aren't living these holy, perfect lives. But even in spite of you, God can use you. But God's the God of redemption. You see, Matthew tells us even in the midst of a messy society, these Gentile non-Jewish women whose situation were abusive and not holy, God chose to use in the line of our Savior, of Jesus. You should look at it. Read their stories. It's all in the Old Testament. It's crazy. But we serve a God of redemption. Please don't forget that. We serve a God who can redeem any and all situations. Perfection isn't required. He can use you. And Matthew points us to one more sticky situation we're just going to mention. It's Matthew 1, 11, verse 12. He points to this. He said, Josiah was father of Jehoiakim and his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. And after the Babylonian exile, and he continues... So not only does he point to these two covenants, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of David, and all the lines in between, he also points us to the exile. That is the national failure. God warned Israel that they would be blessed. They are supposed to be his representatives on this earth. They're supposed to be a holy nation, and he was going to bless them, and he was going to take care of them as long as they followed him. And then Israel's like, yeah, but I'm going to do my own thing. And they went their own way. 
And God wasn't going to bless their sin just like he's not going to bless your sin. He's not going to allow you to be promoted and look good for his glory while you're in the midst of sin. And so the nation decided to do whatever they want. So God took his hand of protection off of them. Babylon came in and conquered them, took them out of their homeland by God's design because they were dishonoring him. They were worshiping other idols. And even though they weren't faithful to him, he was faithful to them in keeping his promises. And guys, you need to have a sigh of relief there. That even when you're unfaithful, God is still faithful. That we can't stop God's promises. And this needs to give us some relief and realize that although things may not go according to your plans, and although you may look at the news, stop watching it so much, number one, and although you may look at the news and you may be scared about what's going on in the world, we, our God is far greater And our nation is not stronger than him. And God's plans and purposes are going to prevail no matter what the situation you may think is going on. Like God is far greater. Nothing will stop him from carrying out his plans or purposes. Your messiness doesn't stop God's faithfulness. And when your life is rooted in the promises of God and the promises of Jesus, we can trust he's going to come through every single time, even in the midst of mess. Because we've seen from real history how he uses the faithful and the unfaithful to bring about his plans. And what seems to be true is that those who are faithful to him, they get to ride it out with him. They get to experience the blessings and the goodness that comes from a life of faithfulness. And those who rejected him, I mean, God's plan still came to be. They just missed out on the goodness. They just missed out on the blessings. They just missed out on experiencing what Jesus calls an abundant life or an overflowing life through him. Regardless, God's going to do what he's going to do. But we can either join him or we can walk away. And what we're talking about, folks, is the providence of God. That he has a plan and he's working with us or in spite of us, but his plans will prevail. So be comforted in knowing that like Jesus God's promises will come through. That's his personal promises to us about our salvation and about how he's going to use us and the promises he gives us about our eternity and our hope. Because while your life may seemingly be going off track, God's still doing a good work and he's going to continue his good work. And God's grace is available to us all. What we're going to see next week is that when he needs to, he'll show up and do a miracle a special miracle. And we'll see a little baby boy come from this unwed mother. Another sexual scandal out of all the list of those women's there. She's the other one. And Matthew's preparing us, hey, but this one's different. But we'll talk about that next week. And it's not even cold outside. And we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. Aren't you excited? <laughs> You're like, we didn't know that story could be told outside of Christmas. It can be. It's pretty cool. We'll talk about it next week, the birth of Jesus. I just want you to re- remember, because this is Matthew's point, is that the king has come. His name is Jesus. And it's rooted in real history and a real time. And Jesus was a real pers- per- a per- person. And God carried out the real promises that he made because he is the king. God can be trusted. Even if you're faithless, God can be trusted in his faithfulness. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, today we're reminded about the declaration that Jesus is king. He is the anointed one who was predicted long ago, who came to this earth for our salvation.
Father, we submit our lives to you and pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ as our King. Father, help us through our messiness. Between the messes that we've created and the messiness that we've caused or created in our families, Lord, it just seems like it's all been thrown off track. And perhaps you may never even use us because of it or use our family because of it. But Father, we see today that that's not true. We know your grace abounds. We know that you are the God of redemption who can redeem our situation and our future situations. So, Father, we thank you for being a God who is active and involved in our lives. We thank you for your great salvation. That salvation that promises us eternal life through Jesus Christ. The salvation that promises us there's more to this life than what we see, what we smell, what we hear, and what we experience. So, Lord, we cling to the promises of Jesus. We cling to that because he lives, we too will live. Father, we cling to your hope, your salvation, and we want to trust you more and more each day. So, Lord, help us do that in Jesus' name. Will you stand with me?